We started celebrating my birthday <laughs> a week ago. Uh, I remember uh, a week ago Saturday, a week ago yesterday. It was, I don't know if you remember, it was, a, it was just a beautiful day. I mean, here it is, end of June, and it was sunny and about 72 degrees. It was just incredible. So we loaded up and we went out to eat over in, over in Charleston. And we're sitting there and just can't believe how nice the weather is. And so I said, you know what would be fun? Let's go to Lincoln Log Cabin. Let's just go down to Lincoln Log Cabin. We're here in town. We'll go down there. We'll walk a couple of the trails. We'll walk around the place. We'll see the people because, you know, they're all out there and they're, you know, they're, they're old pioneer garb and they're doing their pioneer stuff. And so it'll be kind of fun to watch. We decided we'd go there. So I, we get back in the Jeep and I shut all the, well, we shut all the doors. And that's when I noticed that the dome lights hadn't shut off on the Jeep. And I thought that was a little weird. So I pushed the button. Nothing's happening. Uh, you know, it's not a big problem. There's just something going on. We'll, we'll figure this out. So I had, it was a little, you know, it wasn't warm, but it was, it was sunny. So I'd left all the windows cracked about that much. And I went to roll the windows up, and they wouldn't roll up. <laughs> and that's when I realized that there, there was some kind of a problem. But still, it was a nice day, and I thought, well, this isn't going to be a big issue. So I, I uh, let us. You know, we went ahead and went down to Wal or went down to Lincoln Log Cabin. And while Trish was taking the kids on a hike, I was doing, you know, what I know how to do. I got my phone out and I Googled, and it it struck me as I was doing this. I'm at Thomas Lincoln's house. I'm I'm at Abraham Lincoln's dad's front yard. And I'm Googling, and I'm typing in Jeep, dome lights on, windows won't go down. And I thought, well, that's pretty pathetic. Uh, but it, it occurred to me at the time, Thomas Lincoln wouldn't know how to fix it either. You know, he, he'd have no clue. So I type it, in, and instantly I get all these responses popping up, and they all said the same thing. You've got a broken ground wire in the driver's door. It's a very common problem, and it's a very easy fix. And I thought... That's what I want. I want common problems. I want easy fixes. No problem at all. So I explained to, to Trish. I said, hey, it's just a ground wire broken. No problem at all. And, and we, we left there. We had to stop at Walmart, just like the Lincolns used to do. You know, they would leave, they'd leave the farm, and they would go to Walmart and pick up their stuff. So we stopped at Walmart. Trish went to Walmart, and, and I'm sitting out in the parking lot with Connor. And so I pull out my iPad, and I pull up. YouTube this time. I type in YouTube, Jeep broken ground wire driver's door. And this video pops up. And it's, a, it's three minutes long, three minute video of this guy fixing the very problem I have. And I'm watching this. It takes me three minutes to watch it. It takes him three minutes to fix it. I think, no sweat. He opens the door. He, there's this little rubber piece that protects the wires. He slides it back. He hooks the wires back together. I said, this is easy. I can do it. So I opened the door. I slid that rubber piece back, and I looked at it, and I thought, I can't do this. <laughs> you know, it, it looks so easy in the video. And, you know, the wire was obviously broken. I couldn't tell which one was broken. And so I'm pulling it, and I've got that image, you know, from the movies of the guy trying to defuse the bomb. You cut the red wire, you know. Cut, cut, cut the green wire or the red wire. Like, Don't cut either wire. I'm looking, and, and my wires don't look like his wires. And, and suddenly, I'm just realizing, I can't fix this. I can't do it. I can't make this work. I can't make it right. There's few things more frustrating 
You know, if it, if it was just a matter of the dome lights, I know, I know where the button is. It's up here. You know, I push that button or I turn this thing down here and the dome lights go off. That's, that's how they work. I could, I could figure that out. If it was a fuse blown, I know how to change fuses. I No, get the little thing, pull it out, put the right fuse in, you're good. You, you go on. But to go through this mess of wires and to try to find that one broken wire, how do you fix I have no clue how to do that. And I'm coming to realize there are a lot more problems that I don't know how to fix than problems that I do know how to fix. Problems like our country. <laughs> problems like our world. Problems like our society. And over the last couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of posts about the direction our country's going. I've seen a lot of comments posted, and I've, I've read a lot of articles. I've watched interviews, and, and I look at this, and, and, and I just keep coming back and wondering, how do we fix this? And, and I think we're asking the wrong question. See, when my windows wouldn't roll down, the, the answer wasn't the windows. The answer wasn't, well, the windows are broken. The answer was deeper. The answer is deep inside the door where I couldn't even see it. There was a, a broken wire. That's why the windows wouldn't roll down. It, the problem wasn't the windows. It wasn't the windows' fault. The window was a symptom. The problem was something deeper. And so when we ask questions about what's broken in our society, what's broken in our country, we have to ask, what broke? What is it that's broken? And the answer I keep coming back to is not an answer I like because the answer I keep coming back to is the church broke. The church stopped being the church. The church stopped being what Jesus called us to be. We stopped being salt. We stopped being the salt of the earth. Jesus called us to be salt. Salt is a preservative. Salt keeps things from spoiling. It keeps things from going bad. And we stopped having that influence in our society. We stopped being the light of the world. The light, uh, the light that, that lifts up Christ and, and points Christ out. City set on a hillside, Jesus says, can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and hide it under a bushel. They put it on a stand so it gives light to the whole house. And we stopped doing that. We stopped pointing people to Him. Jesus said that we were to be a force that would go after the gates of hell. That the gates of hell would not prevail. But I think we got complacent. I think we got lazy. And when we got lazy, our world grew wicked. And what we're seeing now is not the problem. What we're seeing is the symptoms. The church is broken. I've seen a lot of people over the last couple of weeks, a lot of people ranting about sin. A lot of people ranting about judgment. A lot of people talking about condemnation. And I see this over and over again and what the Bible condemns. And as we move from 1 Peter chapter 3 to chapter 4, I find myself confronted in chapter 4 by a Scripture that I cannot get away from. It's a Scripture I keep coming back to over and over again. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, 
What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. What happens when the church stops being the church? What happens when the church stops taking a stand for something? What happens when we stop taking a stand for morality? What happens when you and I stop saying no to sin? What happens when our world loses the only image it has of who God is? There's a condition that uh, infants get from time to time, little, little babies. I, uh, I consulted with, with my nurse this week. Maxine came and we talked about this. There's a, there's a condition that infants get sometimes. It's a dangerous condition. It happens when the baby stops eating, when the baby stops taking in nourishment, when the baby stops gaining weight, when the baby stops growing. It's a very dangerous condition, and it is called failure to thrive. And all through 1 Peter, what we've seen is Peter's call for the church to thrive, for Christians to thrive, for believers to thrive in the middle of a world where we don't belong, in the middle of a world where he calls us exiles, meaning you don't have a say in the way this world works. He calls us outcasts. We don't belong here. How do we let our faith thrive? Well, what happens if we don't let our faith thrive? What happens if the church is broken? And I think what Peter shows us here in in chapter 4 is that without thriving faith, our world loses its understanding of who God is. Because if the world doesn't have the church, if the world doesn't have the church holding forth an example, then the world loses its understanding of the holiness of God. We're going to be in the first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4 today. If you're using the Bibles in the pews, we encourage you to use those and follow along. Uh, If you're following along with one of those Bibles, it's page 1016. Uh, We finally made it past 1015. I feel like I've been saying that for weeks. Um, It's on page 1016. Peter makes a turn here in chapter 4, and he starts talking about the church in the world. Now, if you remember in the last few verses we looked at in in chapter 3, the last few times we Peter was talking about individual Christians and groups within the church and how they were to live in such a way that would honor Christ. So he's talking about how the church now lives in the world. It's not so much about our influence as it is our example. What does a Christian look like? What should your neighbors, what should your co-workers, what should your family and your friends, your non-Christian family and friends and co-workers, what should they expect out of you? And so there in chapter 4, Peter begins in verse 1, and he says, Since therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's our motivation. That right there is our example. That's the example that we have to live for. We strive to be like Jesus. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And then he goes on to verse 2 and he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the call on your life from this point on to live the rest of your life, the rest of your time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for the will of God. Now I want you to notice he's addressing Christians here. He's not addressing the nations. 
He's not addressing our country. He's talking about us. He's not saying, here's what's wrong with those people. He's looking at our lives, the lives that we live. He's addressing the exiles. He says, this is how you are to live from here on out. From the moment that you accept Christ as your Savior, the moment that you claim Him as your Lord, that you are going to bow to His will, this is how you are to live from here on out. He says, for the time is past. This is verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. There's a lot of stuff there in those four verses. There's a lot of stuff right there in verse 3. I don't think I need to define the stuff in verse 3. I don't think I need to explain to you what all those things in verse 3 are. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, that time's over. You don't go back and do those things anymore. That's not what you live for anymore. You're living for the will of God. You don't do those things. And then he lists sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, Lawless idolatry. I really don't think I have to define those. I think you probably see them. I think you know exactly what those things are. He says that's in your past. That's not a part of your life now. And he says you can't go back to living that way anymore. That's not what your life is about. You've accepted the call to holiness. And that seems to be a concept that is all but lost on the church in America today. The church in America today, we are in love with the concept of grace. We love grace. I mean, I love grace. I named my daughter Grace because of the grace of God. You know, it, we, we, we named her Grace because of, of the grace that we have. And so we love to talk about grace and we love to talk about forgiveness and we love to affirm people and say, God will forgive you of anything you've done. He forgives everything. And you know what? He does. But we forget that grace without holiness is cheap. Grace without a call to holiness is false. Grace without a call to changing your life and living for something else does nothing. The call to grace without a change of behavior, without denial of sin, is an insult, an affront to the cross of Christ. Your sin sent Him to the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross because of our sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, how can we live in it any longer? How can we go back to that way of life? And it's a call to holy grace because people are watching. Do you notice people are watching? He says in verse 4, he says, with respect to this, with respect to the fact that you don't go and do those things anymore, 
that you don't go and have, go to their parties like you used to, and you don't go out and you do these things and those things. You don't do that. With respect to this, in verse 4, he says, they are surprised. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. He says, your non-Christian friends are, are amazed at your behavior. They, they are blown away by your purity. At least they, they should be. They ought to be blown away. But it seems to me that many Christians I know, and i got to admit, a lot of preachers I know, a lot of preachers I know, are doing their best to just live like everybody else. They're saying, look at me. I'm a Christian, yet I like to do the same things you do. Look at me, I'm a Christian, and I can drink just as much as you can. And, and people aren't surprised at that now, instead of surprised at our good behavior. Peter says they malign you. I don't think they malign us for the same things anymore. They malign you because of your good behavior? Good. Let them malign you because of your good behavior. It means they're noticing. It means they've noticed there's something different about this guy. What's he got that I don't have? And no, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. But it means that you're at least trying. It means that you say no to sin. We used to have this idea. We used to, we used to understand. I don't think we understand this anymore. We used to understand that life is about choices, right? We understood. Life is about choices. You can't do everything, okay? Um, I went out about three weeks ago, and I bought a pair of running shoes, and I learned that they work just as well for walking. Um, and they work even better for just sitting places. I put them up on my desk, and I mean, they're nice and white. I don't want to get them dirty about my running, but, you know. I bought those shoes thinking I might like to do some running. <laughs> You know, Tara and Wes are traveling right now. They're in Cincinnati eating. They were eating that Cincinnati chili stuff yesterday. I can't stand that. Anyway, that's not real chili. Anyway, it's just me. Tara, Tara runs marathoners. She's, she's a marathon runner, you know? And we, she loves the way that we encouraged her. And, you know, she just brought a tear to her eye. And she's like, I am so blessed to have you guys. And she's just so thankful for all of you and the encouragement that you guys all offered her when she was running that marathon up in Chicago. I would love to run a marathon. I really would. But yesterday was the 4th of July. And yesterday was the day for the annual Nathan's Hot Dog Hot Dog Eating Contest. I would really love to win a hot dog eating contest. I think I could eat more hot dogs than anyone else in five minutes. I really think I could. I think I've got the technique down. I think I could eat more hot dogs. I really think I could. I would love to run a marathon. I would love to win a hot dog eating contest. I have come to the conclusion I can't do both. I have made my choices, and I'm sticking with them. You know, I'm going to go with the hot dog eating contest, and you know, see how well I can. I'm going to training this year and see what I can do next year. You, know, you, you have to make choices. You can't do it all. You can't do everything. You can't claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and continue to do the things listed in that verse there. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and continue to live a lifestyle that is contrary to what He 
commands. And I, as your preacher and Bible scholar, I have no right to redefine what these words mean. None of us have the right to redefine what this book says. Now, I've ranted. Let me, I want you to notice something else, though. The point of this call to holiness, the point of this call to morality, is not so that I can stand up here and say, I'm right and they're wrong. We're good, they're bad. That's not the point. The point is to direct them to the gospel, to direct them to the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on and he says in verse 5, but they, those outside of the church, they, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Did you notice the motivation? It's not just judgment but so that they might live in the Spirit, so that they might have eternal life, so that they might overcome their sin. The world needs the Gospel. The world needs the good news of Jesus Christ. The world needs to know that there is a way out of sin, a way out of addiction. They need to know that there is hope. And if they don't see that in the holiness of our lives, they're not going to find it anywhere else. They're going to stop looking. And maybe they already have stopped looking. If we fail to thrive in our faith, our world loses its only view of God's holiness. And that's a tragedy. But equally as tragic, if we fail to thrive in our faith, the world loses its view of God's glory. And the issue is, where else are they going to see God's glory? Or, where else are they going to see His holiness for that matter? What, who else is standing for God's glory in this world? What other group of people are upholding God's standards? The standards of morality, standards of right and wrong. Not just that, but His standard of love, of self-sacrificing, giving love that you would do anything for anyone in need. The standard for grace, His standard for forgiveness for everyone. Where else is Christ going to be exalted in this world? Where else is He going to be seen as Lord? Where else is He going to be glorified? There's only one source of this in the world, and that is the church. How do we show God's glory to them? How do we lift up Christ? He says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> you think maybe He's writing to us? Well, He's writing for His day. Things were pretty bad in, in Peter's day as well. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He gives them two commands there. Be self-controlled. That's a command. Be sober-minded. That is also a command. And the reason is for the sake of your prayers. And what he's saying is, if you're not self-controlled, if you're not thinking clearly, you're not going to pray. You're not going to put God in charge. And you're not going to seek Him first. You're not going to pray if you're not self-controlled and if you're not sober-minded. You're either going to be in a frenzy running after this and that and going after all kinds of things, or if you're not in a frenzy, you're going to be lazy if you're not self-controlled and sober-minded. You think Peter ever had to learn that lesson? You think back to 
the garden the night before the crucifixion? Peter there in the garden. What did Jesus have to say over and over again? Wake up! Pay attention! Be self-controlled! Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Wake up! Pay attention! You've got to pray! Without these, without being self-controlled and sober-minded, you lose your connection to the Father. You lose your connection to prayer. You lose your connection to that power. He goes on into verse 8, and he says, Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I love that verse, because above all, above everything else, beyond anything else that we can do, anything else that we can stand for, anything else that we're going to be about, Above all, keep on loving one another. And his reason is, love covers over a multitude of sins. That's a little confusing. What does he mean by that? How does love cover over sins? He's actually quoting. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And Peter's quoting the last half of that. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. Love is the opposite of stirring stuff. Love doesn't stir things up. Love doesn't keep picking at those wounds. Love doesn't keep that hurt alive. Love doesn't keep bringing up old mistakes over and over again. Love doesn't go out and talk bad about someone because they hurt your feelings. It's the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> That's tough. That's very difficult. But you can't see the love of Christ if you're constantly bringing up those old wrongs. You can't see the love of Christ in that kind of behavior. Christ cannot be glorified in that kind of behavior. It's not love. And then he follows that up with verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Showing, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now remember, this is all in the context of, of glorifying God. It's all in the context of bringing glory to God, of lifting up Christ, making sure people see Christ. And so I really think, I think the real key to that verse, verse 9, isn't the first part, it's the last part. Without grumbling. Do it without grumbling. It's not obedience because, well, I've got to be nice to you, Jesus said so. You do it without grumbling. It's obedience that points to Jesus. The way we love each other, the way we show compassion on others, the way we forgive the way we care for each other should point people to Jesus. It should lift Him up. It should glorify Him. And then he wraps it all up in verses 10 and 11. And he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I look at those two verses, and they make me want to take a long, hard look at why we do what we do. They make me want to take a hard, long, hard look at, at what we do here and not just ask 
are we doing the right things, but are we doing the right things in a way that God is glorified? Are we doing things in a way that, that Christ is lifted up? That we're not beating people over the head with the truth because we're wrong in their rights. That we're not condemning people because they don't follow our standards, but rather that our lives, our holiness, and our example glorify Jesus. That Jesus is lifted up so that our faith thrives so that they can thrive. Because you see, it, as much as we like being right, and we do like being right, that can't take precedence over glorifying God. And there are way too many Christians out there right now who are screaming about being right. And you know what? They might be right. But they're not glorifying Jesus. I don't see any love in what they're saying. They're not lifting up Christ. And if you can't see His love, if you can't offer His forgiveness, if you can't see His holiness in your attitudes, then we're not doing it right. And the fact is, our world doesn't need to know that you and I have got it all together. They don't need to know that you and I have got it all figured out. They need to know that we're a mess. They need to know that we've made mistakes, that we've messed up, that we don't always get it right. And more than that, they need to know that we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix this problem ourselves. Just like I couldn't, I couldn't find that broken wire myself. I couldn't fix that. I didn't have the skills for that. So you know what I did? I took it to a professional. I did. I paid someone else to find that problem for me. And they did. Within an hour. Within an hour. They f not just one broken wire, they found two broken wires in that door. And they found like, a, like three other problems that I didn't even know I had. And they haven't charged me for it yet either. That's the amazing part. I couldn't have done that. You can't fix your sin problem. You can't fix your addiction problem. You can't fix that yourself. You can't fix the problems in your family. You can't fix the problems that you're going through. You can't fix that. We have to take it to someone who specializes in sin problems. We have to lay it before Him and say, I can't do this. I need you to fix this. That's why we surrender all to Him. That's why we don't just surrender if I surrender the stuff I can take care of, is that enough? You know, if I surrender nine-tenths to you, would that be okay? If I just need to hold on to this, this one little thing. I, I need this one little thing to play with. You know, I need to work on that myself. We surrender all. We surrender the big stuff. We surrender the things that keep us up at night. We surrender the things that keep us going to the doctor week after week. Problems we can't fix. We surrender those problems that keep us from sleeping, keep us from really knowing joy and peace because as long as we hold on to them, we're not surrendering to them. So we surrender all. I'm going to sing about that here in a moment and then we're going to come to the table. The table says, this do, this do in remembrance of me. It's it's so easy to think about what we've done when we come to the table. I think about the first time I 
got, I took communion. I took it the Sunday after I'd gotten baptized, you know. That was, that was my little way of saying it's time, you know. It's time to make that move and, and take that. But it wasn't about me. It was about what He did for me. So Maybe today is the day when you say, I need to let go of this. I need to let Him take care of it. I need to surrender all. We'd love to pray with you about that. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to tell you, hey, there's a lot of people here who learned that lesson the hard way also. If you need us to pray for you today, we would love to do that. Let's stand together as we sing.